Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 4. Today's topic, Origins. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions Podcast. Say hi to my co-host, Lee and Shannon. What's up, Amen? Hey, Lee. Amen. Good to see you. Nice to see you, Shannon. Today's podcast is going to be on origins. We're going to talk about the stories we tell, whether they're true or not, about where they come from, and what happens when those stories fall apart. Now, in advance of today's episode, we asked our listeners to complete a sentence and tell us a little story that goes along with it. The sentence was, I was blank years old when I learned blank about myself. Does one of you guys want to cue up our first response? So we were not expecting anything in particular when we asked for these submissions and we were thrilled with what we received and wish we could play them all. But one in particular stuck out insofar as unbeknownst to the person who submitted it, it has everything to do with what we want to talk about in today's episode. Yeah, my story is that of a fundamentalist man, part of the fundamentalist Mormon faith. I was 35 years old, five wives, 25 children. I was a general authority in the church. And I really believe my shit didn't stink. I was special. And it all came crumbling down. I would love to hear hotel bar sessions talk about how stories inform individuals, but also cultures in this really destructive, fundamentalist way. That's so interesting. It turns out that the reason why we decided to talk about this topic next is all of us were watching, and maybe some of you are watching too, this Netflix documentary series, Murder Among the Mormons. So we're all done watching it now. We're ready to talk about it. And then we're ready to talk about how this relates to origin. One of you guys want to summarize the series for those who haven't had a chance to watch it yet? I'll do it here since I'm the one who's the least familiar with LDS, the Church of Latter-day Saints. So Ammon is a former Mormon and Shannon lives in Salt Lake City. So she's almost, she's Mormon adjacent. (laughs) But I, this was actually just completely shocking. It's a three-part miniseries on Netflix. It's basically about this guy, Mark Hoffman, who grew up in the LDS church and in his early 20s became pretty well known as a trader of rare documents We skip ahead to 1985, where there are these three bombings in Salt Lake City, one at the office of another rare documents trader, another one at the home of a rare documents trader that actually didn't kill the guy, it killed his wife. And then our protagonist, Mark Hoffman's car is bombed and he's injured, but he doesn't die. It looked like the backstory to this was that he had found a very famous letter called the Salamander Letter which challenged one of the origin stories of the Church of Latter-day Saints. And so the suspicion was that there were dark institutional powers that were trying to stop these documents from getting out. But as we find out later, it turns out that Mark Hoffman was actually a master forger and had for years, decades at this point, been producing documents, not only original documents of the Church of Latter-day Saints, but also early American documents and various other kinds of things, poems by Emily Dickinson, letters from Abraham Lincoln. But he was a master forger and all of these things were forgeries. And we do get a glimpse into after Mark Hoffman is tried and sentenced 
to life in prison. He does agree to confess and try to explain what he did. And putting aside that he's a little tad bit sociopathic. But one of the really interesting things that he says is that it doesn't matter if the documents themselves are authentic. It only matters that people believe in them, that that's what makes them authentic. And so he, as someone who, again, in his early youth, had turned away from the church and had become an atheist, was really interested in forcing other people to have to challenge those same kinds of fundamental faith structures in the origin stories that they have been told. Yeah, I was curious how you guys would take this. I, so just as a full disclosure, I did grow up Mormon. I actually also, I'm a little too young to remember this story well. I was eight when all this happened, but I'm very close to people who were very close to this story. And so it's a story that I've known about for a long time. It's a story that parts of it are in family lore. And it was very interesting to find out suddenly all my friends on Facebook are talking about this thing that's from my childhood. And I can go watch this Netflix documentary, which among other things, looks like and reminds me of like family footage of from when I was six, seven, eight years old. So it definitely got me thinking about origins in a different way. But I was very curious to see how folks who weren't from in the tradition would take the story. But it sounds like it's really resonating with people. Yeah, maybe could you just really quick, Amon, this is my question, but I imagine a lot of people who are not familiar with the LDS church also have this question. But why was it such a big deal that this that the books or the plates were revealed to Joseph Smith by a white salamander as opposed to an angel? Sure. Yeah. I'm an ex-Mormon, but I'm going to try to tell these stories in as neutral of a way as possible. And listeners, I'm curious. I know some of our listeners are also Mormon or ex-Mormon. I'd be curious if, if, if people want us to weigh in as we talk about that. It's great. But very important to the stories of the Mormon faith the ways in which these stories, these things were revealed to Joseph Smith. So the Mormon church was founded by Joseph Smith in 1830, formally in upstate New York by this person, Joseph Smith, who for around a little over a decade prior to this had been telling stories about visitations that he'd received from angels, about this set of documents, these golden plates that he'd received, and which would eventually become the Book of Mormon. And A lot rides on his testimony about these things, his testament about them. There's a lot of attention paid in the church. And when you're learning this, even as a young kid, I remember we would learn about all the people who had seen the plates and all the people who there's three people who saw some of these angels with Joseph Smith. And there's eight people who saw the plates and their testaments are literally at the front of the Book of Mormon with their signatures on them, attesting that these things really happened. And so these things really happened is a super crucial part of the way in which this origin story of the Mormon church is told. The angel who who supposedly revealed it was this guy Moroni, who's an important figure in in the Book of Mormon, and and was connected then to Mormon theology. The figure of a salamander, it sounds like Mark Hoffman chose it just because he, for the lulls, we would say nowadays, right? Because he was a troll. But I always thought it was more interesting than that. There's also pretty well attested evidence that Joseph Smith, especially as a younger man prior to founding the Mormon church and his family were pretty actively involved in some of the occult and some some sort of like more experimental forms of spirituality that were active in upstate New York with connections to magic and alchemy and such. And salamanders are big figures in that. So I always thought it was this, the thing that made it scary was it moved it from a humanistic religious register to a like magical occult register, but maybe that was just an unconscious choice on Hoffman's part. But that I think 
the crucial thing. I want to add one thing, Lee, to the way you're summarizing the story, which I think is crucial too. I think it's really important that even though when he's in jail, Hoffman describes losing his faith. He says, I lost my faith when I was like 13 or 14. He was living his whole life, including throughout this, as an active Mormon. So nobody other than maybe his very close friends would have known that he had lost his faith, which I think is an important and maybe not surprising for a forger. But that's why I think the salamander is important. One of the things I was thinking about when I was watching this, because it's pretty clear that there's a deep connection to documents and documentary evidence supporting the origin of the Mormon faith. And I think that that's true of, of really any faith or any political system, this search for the document to ground it and to have, have it be an origin. But the difference is, is that since Mormonism is such a young religion, that there's so many documents that are possibly there to provide that kind of origin for it. So it makes the finding and seeking after documents all the more pressing because there's lots of that are really there. Yeah, you can imagine how much early Christians would love to have a more rich archaeological and how wild it would be if they did. Or the Hebrew Bible, just so many things that could possibly be a a text to ground it. Even when you find something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, suddenly everything's tossed up in the air. Like, what does this mean if something different is said about the origin that has come down that now everybody in general accepts as the origin, not an origin? I think one of the really interesting things that's a difference between, for example, early Christian and Hebrew texts and even the early texts of Islam and the LDS and what makes the LDS much closer and just in terms of its relationship to documents, much closer to the founding fathers of the United States is that so many of them rely on actual signatures, right? And so I know that Amon probably caught up on this too as well. Just this, the fact that Mark Hoffman was such a master forger and could believably imitate so many of these signatures, which are of course supposed to be inimitable. That's how we verify the genuineness of documents is with a signature. And I think that if we found out that actually all of the people that we thought signed the Declaration of Independence weren't actually the the same people, we might have that kind of relationship. Whereas I think it's always been a part of the Abrahamic tradition that these were sort of collections and that there's no single author, et cetera. So it was really interesting to me that all of his forgeries were early documents of LDS or early documents of the United States government or early literature. What's also interesting is one of the things that was said in the documentary that there's probably so much out there that we'll mm. never know. Mm-hmm. It really raises the philosophical question of what is it that we put so much faith in with these original tangible documents? What is it that we feel like grounds us in a belief system if we can hold up a piece of paper and say, well, look, it says it right here. You see this all the time with the sort of constitutionalists who are like, well, look at the document, go back to the document. What does the document say? As if since it's been written down and preserved and we have this document, that's everything. I was thinking about that too, because I was thinking at some point in my life, I learned that the pilgrims and the Native Americans didn't actually sit down and have corn at Thanksgiving. They didn't? Uh, (laughs) You guys, I've got so much to tell you. Wait till you hear, wait till you hear about what happened next. But we have these kind of stories 
that we were told, hopefully they're teaching history better in schools now. But when I was growing up, these histories about the founding of the United States, so not in terms of the actual documents, but just origin stories. And it, it is unsettling, decentering, disturbing to learn that the origin stories that you had been told that are a part of how you form your identity and you understand the identity of your community are false and that the belief in those stories is itself a whole phenomenon that in this particular example needs to be dismantled. However, I do think that discovering that the original Thanksgiving dinner wasn't as I was told or any other number of sort of stories like that, discovering that those were false, that I was lied to, those origin stories are wrong, is a dramatically different thing than I would think if I found out that the Constitution was actually written in 1850 or like right. the Constitution was actually written in the 1920s, you know, yeah, or yeah. whatever. Well, um, it's because we tend to think, but in the case of the Constitution, it's not just a declaration. It's what we call a speech act. It literally founds a nation. And so if it turned out that it didn't found the nation in the way that we said it did, <laughs> this would cause some conceptual problems. For a realist, for, it would be no problem in certain ways because we're there now. But most Americans rightly believe that we trace the authority of our national institutions to the fact that a certain document was signed and ratified in a process that we purport to be democratic at a certain point in history. And so its historicity is important in a way that the historicity of Thanksgiving isn't. And I think, Lee, you're right that that's true on the account of Mormonism that I learned growing up, that would be true for these sorts of statements in Mormonism also, that these events had founding significance. So if they didn't happen in the way in which they thought they happened, it's not just shuffling the myth around, it's fundamentally altering the architecture of the religion's foundation. <laughs> I just want to go back, though, and push a little bit because I think you're absolutely right, Ammon. And I think that something like a white salamander letter or the fact that the Constitution was written in the 1920s would completely upend an entire national identity or an entire religious identity. But I think that going back to Lee's story, there's something different about hearing about the American Indians and the colonists sitting down to dinner together where there is no document to ground it. It is just a story that's been repeated. And actually holding up the Constitution or holding up the White Salamander Letter or the Book of Mormon or whatever and saying, no, look, here's this actual paper that grounds it that's really different. And I just wanted to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, it would be more like finding out that the the planting of the American flag on the moon photo was actually happened in Nevada. Right. You know, like yeah. it is interesting because no one really is that hung up. I suppose people are some people are very hung up, but most of us are not that hung up about the fact that Shakespeare probably didn't write Shakespeare's plays. Or I don't think even any of us philosophers would be all that shocked or bothered to learn that. Socrates never said any of those things. He was I would be devastated. Always just, he was always <laughs> yeah. just a character of, always just a character of Plato. But it's, you're right. These things like these material documents, whether they're photographs or videos 
or texts have a different status as groundings of origin stories than the stories that we tell each other and that we pass down, for example, through folklore or through family history or whatever, which we always understand as story constructions and stories. Whereas these seem like something else, like the truth. So it's interesting. I think the way you could flip that a little bit is also to say that the problem of skepticism becomes a more pressing problem when dealing with textuality. So for example, Hegel in Hegel's Aesthetics, which is what he titled them, Hegel's Aesthetics. Uh, <laughs> he would. <laughs> he's, I, I'm going to name them after myself. Here's my signature. They're my aesthetics. But <laughs> he, he very much seems to insist on the importance of epic poetry, which he takes to be doing this founding work, only being really possible in a pre-literate world in a world in which you don't have either a very fixed record or a lot of other things that could confirm or disconfirm the truth of what's being narrated. And on the one hand, it might be because then you're more credulous, but, but it might allow things to function as myth in a more smooth way. Whereas when we start to rely on this idea that we can really fix the exact story with reference to specific shareable objects, and especially I think with shareable objects that have signatures attached to them, that fundamentally changes what we take an origin to be, even when in places like the United States, many people want to very strongly attach their identity and their mythology to stories about origins with signatures attached to them, uh, whether in the Mormon faith or more broadly. And you see how that disproportionately then goes against people that would have originally had oral traditions as opposed to written traditions for as far as who gets to claim what the origin of a nation or a country or a people is. And of course, that's a problem for the United States. Go on. <laughs> well, I just mean the difference between certain indigenous peoples yeah. who can't hold up. Here's the signature right. that says that this is our community. This is our land. This is the pilgrims were not welcome to our dinner at all. Versus here, we actually have the land deed that says that this is our land and their signatures on it. And therefore, this is the truth of the origin of this place. And all the treaty obligations that have been right. interpreted by U.S. courts in ways that might look a lot like breaking treaty obligations right. uh, to other folks. Yeah. I, I wonder if we can't also talk about origins on a more personal level. These ideas of the sort of fictions that are passed down, as Lee was saying, that are the stories that, that we heard as children, that we might have heard in our families, that we might have heard in school. But that's also the origin stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and I was wondering, before we go into the larger question of origins as such, if we could read or listen to some of the responses that people sent in to us to see the way that they answered the question, I was X years old when I learned Y about myself. Yeah, let's hear it. So one of our submissions was from Sarah. Sarah writes that she was inspired by our spontaneity discussion in episode one. She says, I was 38 years old when I realized that I am an improvisational choreographer. The choreographic structures I had learned prior to taking my first improv classes in grad school always felt too rigid and lifeless. And I realized that year that my own relationship to time and space needed the comparative freedom of improvisatory choreographic methods. Because like dancing is inherently abstract, but I also think it is profoundly human. And that when we are in the presence of dancing bodies, we find ourselves craving immediacy. And I hate watching perfect dancing. I like watching rigor and effort and attention and intention and failure and problem solving and weirdness. These are the human things. 
And using improvisation to create and perform live dance allows us to suspend and collapse time and space in a way that presents the possibility of creating transcendence. The moment of hyper-awareness in which one can hover over oneself and see the map of movement potential and make infinite choices in the moment, like being lucid in dreams. That shit is exciting. Love it. That's great. Thanks Such so much, a cool Sarah. story. Yeah. yeah. We also got another submission from Bill Wilkerson, who sent in an audio file to explain to us a little bit about the various revisions that his own origin story went through as a gay man. I was 16 to 21 years old when I gayed myself. This is Bill Wilkerson. So I was 16 to 21 years old when I realized or decided I was gay. That long span of time may have been normal for a kid from the heart of Reagan country to come to terms with his sexuality during the Reagan years, but by refusing to date precisely my coming out and by hedging on whether I discovered or decided I was gay, I wanted to make a point about how gay identity is a story we tell ourselves to make sense of our sexuality. This is actually a position of mine that I spent quite a bit of time developing, and the disagreements this position has inspired, particularly from people trained in the analytic tradition, has also recently taught me something new about the connections between the idea of the origin and the stories we tell ourselves. So let's write to it. Our experiences are neither self-intimating nor self-evident and require interpretation in light of other experiences and socially available meanings to make sense for us. Apply this to sexual identity. Prior to coming out, I didn't have gay sexual feelings I repressed. Like so many young people of my generation, I just had a lot of confused feelings for a very long time. In a sense, I was neither gay nor straight, or I was both. It was many interpretive choices about my experience that eventually led me to adopt the sexual identity of gay. Kissing a boy for the first time helped considerably, of course, but only because the interpretive work had readied me. And in fact, the first time I kissed a boy, it was just felt kind of odd, which is not uncommon. This sexual identity made sense of my life, not because it was the truth of my experience, but because it allowed me to retroactively repattern events and feelings in my life. Like any interpretation, it pushed some elements to the background and foregrounded others. And then, going forward, sexual identity became something akin to a project of existence. And so I have insisted down the years that I was not born this way, but rather that choice is involved in the process of forming sexual identity. This is also, however, not a simple voluntaristic choice. It is a situated, non-total freedom. My sexual identity is a construct insofar as the social category used to pattern my experience is a construct. Sexual identity itself emerges at the meeting point of our limited agency, our hermeneutic abilities, and available social meanings and roles. Skeptics of this view have sought to push on those ambiguous, messy feelings that happen prior to identification, asking, aren't those feelings of same-sex attraction, and so isn't it the case really that you were just gay all along? This response typifies a certain philosophical outlook in my view. There is a clear origin of a thing. The origin is the truth of the thing, and the thing is what it is in its origin. And in this case, we even get the individual and the inside as the starting point. Your feelings are what they are apart from social circumstances, and the interior experience is indubitable. Now, I've developed many responses to the skeptics in this position over the years, and they're all basically just reworkings of various standard arguments against the myth of the given, the idea that fully foundational truth resides in our experience. But I only really recently realized that I hadn't fully relinquished my belief in the same myth. I was still imagining those feelings and the interpretation of them as separate things. 
It was, of all things, Deleuze's difference in repetition that somehow broke me of this by making clear that the issue was indeed a question of origin. One day I was teaching Nietzsche after reading the Deleuze, and it seemed just as clear as day. The thing interpreted and the interpretation never exist apart from each other. The feelings I later interpreted as homosexual aren't the origin of my identity. The meeting of the feelings and meanings in the interpretation is the origin, which is to say, there isn't a single origin. Nietzsche's suspicion of pure origins, it runs through the whole of his work, is bound up completely with the primacy he gives interpretation. I don't know yet how I'd convince someone who doesn't accept this view about the linkage of the interpreted and the interpretation. I'm not sure why I even now believe it. But I'm more convinced than ever that my origin story as a queer is the opposite of simple. Thanks so much, Bill. I really like both of those stories because they're both telling stories, interestingly, about discovering that the origin story that they believed had right. been forged. <laughs> That's a really good point. Right? It was not genuine. And in this case, it's not as if someone has disproved the authenticity of some document, but rather something in their actual life, in the process of, as Bill just said, constructing themselves, which is what right. we're always doing. That something in their actual project of self-construction gave lie to the ground of that project and showed it as a forgery. And in both cases, what we see is people saying, I have to rewrite the origin. There's one really interesting thing, though, that I think, again, to parallel back to the documentary, both of our responders here are talking about places where they realize that they could not co-sign their own story. In other words, to, to sign the story mm -hmm. that I used to tell about myself would be false. Whereas, of course, what, if, what the forger is doing is signing someone else's name as though it's properly affixed to that. So there's this ontological honesty. I think that there is. You're realizing a forgery in your own life, but there's this ontological honesty to this moment where you realize I can't sign on to the thing that I've always thought about myself. And I can definitely think of moments like that in my life, and I imagine a lot of us can. Just looping it back to the documentary, Mark Hoffman, when he was young, had figured out how to alter a coin so that it appeared to be genuine. And he sent mm -hmm. it to the Treasury Department and the Treasury Department said, this is genuine. And his response is, if the Treasury Department, the authority says something is genuine, then that's genuine. So the authority marks it with a kind of truth and says that it's genuine. And then it was Mr. Shannon that Lee liked so much who actually rephrased what that story was and said, yeah, he said, if something is accepted, if you can convince somebody that it's true, then it becomes true. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if these stories that we tell ourselves is the same thing as a forgery, as opposed to maybe just a fiction, and we're constantly telling ourselves different fictions, as opposed to what, what happens in this documentary and these actual forgeries, where if the, the struggle is to find an authority, an institution, to be able to give this stamp that therefore makes something real. So it's not just, I always grew up learning that the, the problem was that, that he was embarrassing the church so much. And the fact that very high-ranking church officials were fooled by him was this massive source of embarrassment. But this is really interesting because on this account, it's not just, ha-ha, I tricked you, but it's this thing that I don't believe, but that I'm right. pretending to believe and that you all believe, and yet you're so scared might not be true that you're willing to buy my documents. You who are the authorities in the system are now co-signing yeah. 
the forgery that I wrote, therefore, the thing that I am writing is now the true origin of the Mormon faith. And yeah. he almost got away with it. If almost. It kids, if Scooby-Doo hadn't come along at the last minute in the form of, of intelligent forgery detectors. I do think, though, that it's important to keep separate the belief in the authenticity of the document and the belief in what the document attests to, which are different things. So what Mark Hoffman did was not only trick people into believing that a forgery was authentic, but cause them to question what it is that the authentic document is meant to, the, the origin story that it's telling. Yeah. So it's not really about the origin of the document. And I think this is paralleled in Mark Hoffman's own account of his own kind of falling away from the LDS church is that he reached a certain age where, and I, I just want to say this is consistent with my own experience of falling away from the church, is that I reached a point in my life where I just realized that for whatever reason, and I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but my mind just cannot believe in this story. Yeah, same right? thing. And I think what Mark Hoffman wanted was to force people in that tradition, in the LDS tradition, to just ask themselves. And so it doesn't actually matter if, if he's ultimately successful in tricking people into believing that his forgeries are authentic, just having the question, we don't know if this is authentic or not, is not about the document. It's about everything else. Right. So I, so two things. I do want to come back to that. I, I have to say, and I'm being 100% serious when I say this, when I realized the church was not for me, the Mormon church was not for me, it really was as simple as eating a sublime taco. And I'm not joking at all. That's a longer story. So we'll put that in the bonus content maybe. But it was not a falling away. It was, no, I, it's going to go somewhere else. Now, like Bill is saying, it took me another seven years to realize that that's what that experience meant. But I know the experience where it happened. Oh, um, I, had a, I had a definitive yeah. shift in my origin. And it yeah. was very clear. I was like, nope. <laughs> But I, okay, but I also want to come back to this thing you guys are saying about uh, about calling into question. I think that to get something signed on by the authorities in the context of the Mormon faith is an explicit enough endorsement of truth. I think that Hoffman and Shannon are both right. The Shannon in the show, not our Shannon. You're right too, but that's not <laughs> who I'm talking about right now. When they claim that truth comes down to this ability to get certain people to sign on to something. Because yeah. in, in, the, in the context of authority in the Mormon faith, I think that the materiality is important that a lot of people have emphasized, but so is a certain account of authority. And it's really important that the people who Hoffman was able to trick and the person who started our call, the former polygamist who started our show today, both described their role as general authorities. That is to say, certain people's authority is supposed to play such an important role that have a truth interpreted by them changes the structure of belief. I think that might, I don't know if it's specific to Mormonism or not, but I think that that's a really important part of the way that Hoffman's working. And it's also where I feel like, Lee, I'm worried you're getting him off the hook a little bit here. I don't think he's just trying to challenge people's beliefs. I think that in a way that's, again, in a way that's honest, but I think he's trying to use structures within the very nature of belief and to use chicanery in order to trigger a crisis of faith on the cheap. And that I think is, he did a lot of objectionable things 
But even though I share his disbelief in Mormonism, I find that very objectionable. I have to say the way in which he did that. So that's a, that's a maybe a longer conversation. But going back to Brady, our first uh, audiophile who who talked about being a member of the general authority in this polygamous sect, he specifically said, I thought my shit didn't stink. And so those people who represent the kind of authority, like maybe the U.S. Treasury or maybe a certain church authority, there is a sense of perfection, of absoluteness, of infallibility. And that when you occupy that role, it comes with a kind of untouchableness. And so I do think that Hoffman saw that and was deliberately trying to show the lie and the human fallibility of these people. And I'm not, I I actually think it's really interesting because Shannon didn't want to make him into a hero. And even the way I'm talking about it, it's like he was, this is what he was trying to do is try to shake these structures. And he almost has that kind of Nietzschean criminal that just is beyond good and evil and is doing these sorts of things and you don't want to praise it. But on the other hand, you're wow. Yeah. I I also don't want to, I'm going to, I want to tread carefully. I don't want to sound like I'm defending what uh, he did, especially he did commit these three very terrible, violent acts, but I don't think he's just a simple con man. I think that one of the great things about being able to actually listen to his confession and his interview before the parole board or the sentencing board was being able to see how deeply philosophical he was and how careful he thought about both the acts that he was committing and the consequences of those acts. If I could just make a sidebar here for just a second. Many years ago, I think it's about probably about 15 years ago or 12 years ago now, Neve Shulman made this documentary called Catfish. You probably know the MTV show Catfish, and everyone knows the internet slang term Catfish. But the term was originated in this documentary that Neve Shulman made, and I think it was like 2008. And in it, of course, he falls in love with someone online and finds out that the person that he thought that wasn't there, it was actually this middle-aged woman who was living in Michigan. Now, the interesting thing is, at the end of that documentary, they interview the woman's husband who didn't know anything about this. And he's just randomly telling this story about how it used to be the case that when they would make these large shipments of codfish from China to the United States, but by the time the fish got to the United States, they would be all mushy. And so they learned that if you put a few catfish in the tanks with the cod, that the catfish are like nipping at their tails and keep them moving and active for the whole trip. And then you have fresh cod by the time it reaches the United States. So interestingly, that's the origin of the term catfish. It's not a purely negative identification, right? He Mm -hmm. actually says, thank God for catfish in our lives. They keep us fresh. They keep us moving. They keep us on our toes. So back to Hoffman, there is a part of me that sees Hoffman as a catfish in that way, not as a simple con man, but as Mm -hmm. someone who is engaged in a sort of long con and very definite forgeries, but has this function of keeping people on their toes, keeping them fresh, keeping them moving, making them ask questions. I'm not sure if that really amounts to me defending Hoffman. Although the more I talk, I'm starting to feel like I do want to. Yeah. Wow. I did not see it going this way. 
Sorry. I think, oh, I do, but this is why I was thinking about there's, it's always so uncomfortable to listen to Nietzsche talk about things like criminals and like they're just functioning in a way that is not tied to the same kind of outdated and destructive morality that the rest of us schlubs are functioning according to. And you're thinking, wait, is he saying criminals are good? But I think he's saying what Lee was just saying that they show us a different way of looking at the world that while we may not want to say that's what we should be doing, it shows the lie in, in the way that the world tells itself it's functioning. So in this story, it's it, this document could possibly shatter or rearrange or reconfigure in some fundamental way the LDS church, if it's not the angel Moroni, but instead it's a, a white salamander. And I think that the person aside, Mark Hoffman as a person aside, what he did shows that is the way that the church functions in terms of its own origin. And I think what's the most interesting thing about Mark Hoffman is that he's not trying to replace the truth with another truth, that he's right. just trying to disrupt it. So he's not Socrates. He's yeah. not like, I'm going to come and disrupt your... Or Jesus. He's really just trying to unsettle things. And that's what's really unsettling about watching this documentary is that there is something kind of attractive and sympathetic about Mark Hoffman in this. So I, okay. So I, so there's two reasons at least why I think you guys are getting taken in by a con man in a way that love it is, is maybe, love it. which again, like, and like I, so, so, be, so there's no such thing as being a simple con man. You're right. He's definitely not a simple con man and he's a brilliant con man, but I, I am not sure that he's Nietzsche's criminal. <laughs> and I will admit, I will admit I'm probably. Is he a catfish color, though? Is he a catfish? He, is, he might be a catfish. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I'll admit I'm probably colored by my own personal recollections and backgrounds of things. But I think there's at least two big problems. One was his willingness to sell the documents to the Mormon church because they have piles of money mm. so that they would sit on them. In other words, the Salamander letter had gotten out. The Salamander letter actually wasn't devastating. I think that if the just the Salamander letter the contents of which on its own would have been pretty bad, but they, but I think the church could weather that and they were well known, but there, he was but just quick, quick question here, because my understanding was that the salamander letter was a example from some larger file of right. documents that he was supposed to be producing. So yeah, Correct. maybe the salamander letter itself wouldn't have been that damaging, but the idea was there's, all this other material. Yeah, so that's exactly right. But I think that promise is crucial, right? So the teaser has been released to the public and the church can see how damaging the teaser was, but they can recover from it. But the claim is just that Hoffman is going to sell them this McClellan collection, which will be damaging. And then if he had done the 116 pages of the Book of Mormon, if he had done that, I might be willing to say that he was Nietzsche. Like that would have been sufficiently philosophically interesting that I would grant it. But I don't think he was capable of it, which is why he resorted to bombs. But the point is, I think in both cases, he was perfectly willing to let the church bury them and let the damage be that enough people would know that the church was burying something for it to do the work. So you're saying so, he's still really doing it for the money. He's doing it for the money. And he's also not really unsettling it. He's undermining a foundation, which is, again, it's That's not a foundation unsettling. I believe in. Yeah, but he's, uh, you're right. That is, that's literally unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but okay. but but, so, but I don't want us to get too in the weeds about this documentary. Totally fair. Uh, but I can add. So so if, yeah. I have one other thing, and this is really quick. The other thing, I really think this is crucial, and I don't think this comes across enough when we're seeing it after the fact. He was living the life of an ordinary Mormon man, and the number of ordinary Mormon men who don't fully believe the story but still profit from involvement in the faith is a sufficiently large thing. He's not a sort of creator in the Nietzschean sense. He's a guy who wanted to have it both ways. And, I, and it, it might be, again, it might be my own perception, my own decision to leave the faith because I couldn't do that. But I cannot help but see him as somebody who wants to pretend to be the Nietzschean criminal, wants to pretend to be the knight of faith, but really is just a cheap, a cheap imitation. <laughs> Okay, so this might be a too delicate question to ask. And so if you want me to use a different example, definitely tell me. But if you are willing to say that at the end of the day, Hoffman's just a con man, that, that the origin story that he's trying to present was just a forgery, it was just a con, then is it also the case that the LDS origin story is just a con? Like, it's just a way to build a pile of money, as you said. Amen. Uh, <laughs> you you so, have the floor. Yeah. So I think I don't know the answer to that. Joseph Smith says that certain things happened, which we would regard if they if he really believed them to happen as hallucinatory events. And I think this is true of a lot of religious foundations. They involve people who purport to have experiences that fall well outside of the realm of normal experience. So the question is, is this a story that somebody really had these experiences and they're describing them? Or was this person just engaging in a con? Since I don't believe that Joseph Smith saw God, and he says he did, is he lying? In which case, this is just a con. Or does he believe this about himself? Hoffman tells us the answer to that question about himself. Joseph Smith never tells us the answer to that question, so I don't know. But yeah, I'm willing to accept that it might just be a con. We just haven't found the document yet. <laughs> I guess maybe what was behind my question was the other element of the structure of a con, which is mm -hmm. that you're trying to gain something out of it. You're trying to gain something out of the lie or the forgery or the story. The reason I asked it that way is because you had just said the... LDS church sits on a pile of money. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it does still seem like a con to me in that sense. And so yeah. for our Mormon listeners, I'm not, I'm just saying on the structural account that we're using, it does appear that that is the case, but maybe to be less controversial, or I don't know, this might be more controversial. We could say the same thing about the origin stories of the United States and pick whichever one you want, that the United States was founded, first of all, that the United States was a, an empty, a vast empty land, or that people came to North America to flee religious persecution or whatever, in any one of many, many, many stories. But it's not hard to say those stories produced great wealth for the people who perpetuate those stories. And so in that sense- That makes sense. But that's why I wanna go back to the question of authority and who has that authority and what comes from that. Because the question of whether or not the founders, if you will, of the United States, the writers of the constitution, the signers of the constitution, or Joseph Smith, or people who have founded something, whether or not they themselves believe it, it's an interesting question, mm -hmm. but 
ultimately not all that interesting when you talk about the repercussions of the founding, of the origin of a belief system about a nation or a religion. And whether Joseph Smith or right, people got something from the Constitution, whether or not that's the main issue, I think it's not. I think it's people now who have had enough time and enough history to be able to make an institution and to have certain authorities be the guardians of that institution, that that's where you really see where this story, this Mormon murder story comes in, because people are clearly making profits now in all of these origin stories. People are clearly gaining incredible amounts of power from whatever America or the United States is or the Mormon church or the Catholic church or whatever is. And that's where I think the question that this story and that we're talking about in general comes in. Yeah. And so back to the conversation earlier when we were talking about the, the connection between sort of morality and literality, it's interesting in this context, in order to be able to control a story like this, there has to be a text to own. I think that's a crucial point. If we compare the Homeric myths, which are beautiful and which we love to Virgil's Aeneid, this is a, an explicit difference. And it, it actually, I think, structures the experience itself. So Virgil, for our listeners at home, right, Virgil writes the Aeneid under the patronage of Augustus. So Augustus says, somebody needs to write a myth, the origin story of which is, I'm supposed to rule the entire Mediterranean. And Virgil's like, give me the checkbook and we'll go. Now, that doesn't mean that the Aeneid is not a beautiful work of art on its own account, but crucially, it was able to be an authorized edition. It was able to be canonical in a way that Homer, when Homer's writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's no canon. And if somebody else comes along with a different story, those stories can live side by side. I think what's crucial here, and again, I hate to come back to it, but this is why I don't think Hoffman's a Nietzschean creator. That structure is not being challenged here. You're trying to accommodate things in to the story of canonicity, authoritative interpretation, historicality, univocity. All of those things are left intact. It's just, I'm going to fuck with them along the way. I don't think those things are left intact. Okay. I think it shows the anxiety and it shows a sort of anxiety of when you have to protect something that's become a monolithic belief system. And again, for our listeners, I think that there are many monolithic belief systems and this is just allowing us to talk about one among many. I think that it shows the anxiety not to go too far back with Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, when we are presented with something unfamiliar, what do we want to do? We want to find the cause and an explanation Mm -hmm. in order to take away the anxiety of the unfamiliarity. And eventually what we do is we say it so many times that it becomes the origin or the explanation and it excludes all other explanations. And so when you have something like a letter or a bunch of documents or missing pages of a very important text, threaten that, it shows the anxiety that happens when that one explanation, that one cause can maybe not be the one cause and the only explanation. And I think all of those old white men standing around looking at the document was oh, a very, yeah. they're visual, very anxious. Yeah, they're yes, a very, very visual <laughs> presentation of the anxiety of challenging the monolith. Yeah. Well, we are nearing the end of our episode, and we want to encourage all of you to 
continue the conversation with us through email and on our various sites. You can email us at Hotel Bar Podcast at Gmail. Also, we really like to get your audio email. So if you do want to send us an audio file, we might include it in a future episode. So please feel free to do that. You can also visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com. And we have a Facebook page, Hotel Bar Sessions Podcast, and a Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. So you guys, what are we going to talk about next time? So let's talk about the origin of the last year of our lives. Or maybe the terminus of the last year of our (laughs) lives. So yeah, (laughs) yeah. So actually next time our topic really is going to be a sort of one year retrospective of the pandemic. We're recording this this week. It's the almost the third week of March. So we've now made it through one whole year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think I'm the only one of the three of us. I'm half vacced right now, half vaccinated. So I've got, another, I've got another shot in two weeks, but we have seen a tremendous increase in the number of shots in arms, as they say, happening every week. And so it does appear that it's springtime, real springtime for this pandemic. We might be entering a new phase, but we're going to talk next time about what this last year has been like. I'm certainly interested to hear what people have learned philosophically about their experiences, about the nature of community and themselves and family and work, given what we've all just gone through. I just, I hope we learn something. That's all I'm looking for is that we learn something. So. Otherwise it was just a wash. I learned several amazing life hacks all on TikTok. So I have. Oh, one. sweet. So you're going to, so it's just, gonna, we're going to share Lee's best TikToks for the last year. Let's <laughs> oh do that God. instead. Can we please have an episode where we share <laughs> Lee's favorite TikToks? <laughs> that would be really fun to share, have like an episode of sharing TikToks. I could do that. All right. We're going to do that. It'll be bonus content in the summer. We'll share. <laughs> it looks like we've gotten last call at the hotel bar again. So I will catch y'all next time. See you later. Bye. Bye.